Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question Community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCom, with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering, where the question is asked through original arts and music, as well as thought-provoking presentations. This is Frederick Tamagi. Alice in Wonderland. Like Alice, I began the journey through a provocation, a brief glimpse of an interesting and even whimsical oddity, my white rabbit. Then what began as a tiny step through the looking glass of my own safe cultural container became an uncomfortable but necessary exploration way outside the container. You know, we can choose to examine a faraway object in the night sky with binoculars or a telescope. Or we can choose to examine a very tiny object with a magnifying glass or a microscope. Sometimes we don't intentionally choose the option that will provide more clarity. Sometimes it's just easier not to. But chasing my white rabbit became a full-on tumble down a rabbit hole of questions with clarity as a possible reward. So just like the story, I've decided to take you down the rabbit hole a ways with me tonight. And just like the story, I'm hoping you'll be intrigued, amused, even disturbed, and mostly challenged by the tumble. Now, before I share my, my White Rabbit story, I want to ask you some basic questions, not so much to solicit any instant answers, but more for you to make a mental note of your immediate inner reflexes to the questions. So for later, try to remember what those reflexes were. What words matter to you? And is that because the meaning or the experience of those words matter to you? Can the meaning of a word be colored or even distorted by values and symbols? Is there such a thing as the true meaning of a word? And is it important to search for that true meaning? My harmless provocation, my white rabbit in a waistcoat, was an introduction to the world of contronyms. Words that are their own opposites. Has anyone ever heard of a contronym? It's a fairly recent term. I, thought, I just found it. I thought it was pretty interesting. So they're words that are their own opposites. Now, although you probably know uh, what, I, what I mean by that, to illustrate, here are a few familiar examples. The word apology can be an admission of fault or a formal defense. The word clip can be the act of fastening or the act of detaching. Dust can be the act of adding fine particles or the act of removing fine particles. The word oversight can be careless monitoring or careful monitoring. 
quantum can mean extraordinarily big, which is used a lot, or infinitesimally small. The word sanction can be an act of approval or an act of disapproval. And finally, the word weather can mean wear away or it can mean withstand. So for fun, does everyone kind of get what contronym is now? Okay. So for fun, allow me to share this short word puzzle with you involving two contronyms, oversight and sanction. Tell me what this statement means. Because of the agency's oversight, the company's behavior was sanctioned. Let's think about that a bit. What does it mean? <clears throat> Here's what it could mean. Does it mean because the agency closely monitored the company, they imposed a penalty for bad behavior? Does it mean because the agency closely monitored the company, they chose to affirm good behavior? Could it mean because the agency was inattentive, they overlooked misbehavior and gave their approval? Or could it mean because the agency was inattentive, they overlooked good behavior and ignorantly imposed a penalty? It could mean all of those things. The exercise is kind of fun, right? Well, cute, curious white rabbits can be like that. Well, it's clear that contronyms are unique because they are more or less meaningless without a context. Left in uninformed isolation, they kind of implode in confusing self-contradiction. And yet, contronyms are widely used, not for what they inherently mean, but for what we wish them to mean when we use them. As near as I can determine, there are about 100 or so official contronyms in the English language. English has over one million words on record. So the presence of 100 or so contronyms in the language are kind of like this community, small but mighty. Contronyms remind us that context can determine or even disturb our certainty about the meaning of a word. Now, we can amuse ourselves with these unique words that are also their own opposites. But the amusing word games do demonstrate that contronyms actually validate an important principle of meaning itself. It's the principle that context is essential to meaning. Speak or hear a statement like, because of the agency's oversight, the company's behavior was sanctioned, and you have an unavoidable obligation to inform the key words with a greater knowledge of the circumstances and the participants. The only way that the key words will not be useless, self-contradictory, and meaningless is for us to know the context. And the more knowledge and the greater context we can bring to the words, the closer we are to their real meaning, their true meaning, if there's such a thing. Contronyms give us a much-needed excuse to press into the meaning of the words we use, to be intentional about what we mean and why we mean it. And the more important the word, contronym or not, the more important it is to know what we mean and why we mean it. For words like quantum and sanction, both contronyms, by the way, which are tied to significant current events, we are motivated not to be careless about their important scientific and geopolitical context. And the less careless we are, 
the more context we gather. And then, the more informed is the meaning. So, drawing closer to the idea of true meaning also drew me further down the rabbit hole. From the curious world of contronyms to the controversial world of identity politics and the possibility that some other important words were at risk of becoming their own opposites. This past summer, in the midst of our federal election campaign, Stephen Harper and Zunera Ishak, a female Muslim immigrant from Pakistan, unleashed a fierce and ill-timed mini-tempest over Zunera's wish to wear the kneecap during the ceremony granting her Canadian citizenship. What became known as the kneecap debate soon morphed into a mostly unwanted election wedge issue. The government had announced a policy that denied Zunera the right to wear the kneecap during the ceremony. This policy was examined and officially struck down by our federal court as a violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Does everyone remember that? Okay. Now, the Conservative government expressed their intent to appeal the federal court ruling in the Supreme Court of Canada, but as we all know, they didn't get a chance to do that. And Zunera took the oath of citizenship and eventually voted wearing the kneecap. Now, in the politically correct dimension of the kneecap debate, the issue and the outcome appeared to be pretty much of a slam dunk. It was, after all, a question of Canadian values enshrined in our Constitution, values of inclusiveness, tolerance, and freedom. These important values and Zunera's right to dress as her traditions dictated were upheld by the second highest court in our country. The apparent public distaste for the government's attempt to create divisions among voters more or less guaranteed the failure of the kneecap debate as a re-election strategy for the government, and they found that out. Yet, lost somewhere in all the right-minded public outcries were a series of voter surveys regarding the kneecap debate. Some of the surveys were national, and some were taken in Quebec, the informal birthplace of the debate. Many of these surveys, including this one, indicated significant support for a kneecap ban in citizenship ceremonies. More extensive surveys even contained results that favored a broader kneecap ban for frontline public service employees. And all of the surveys indicated that not every Canadian was provoked by the kneecap debate for the same reasons. Now, in my own case, the controversy created a tension, I'll admit that, between my own sheltered Canadian idealism and the harsh reality of global ideologies. This tension caused me to look beyond the election rhetoric that colored the kneecap debate to some of my own real questions about what we mean when we use important values words like tolerance and freedom. These questions made me wonder if the words tolerance and freedom had the potential to become a weird kind of contronym, like their own opposite or like a strange reverse reflection of themselves. Here's what I found myself asking. What if the exercise of tolerance in our community affirmed acts of intolerance in someone else's community? What if the granting of freedom in our community affirmed the denial of freedom in someone else's community? 
These questions made me realize that if tolerance and freedom were the looking glass through which we saw the kneecap debate, then context was ultra important to the meaning of those words. So we could know what we mean and why we mean it. So here's some of the context that I've been struggling with deep inside the rabbit hole. Look, I'm not trying to make a case or lead any of you anywhere other than to a possible question about the, what the words tolerance and freedom truly mean to you. This is Jonathan Ferguson. I was brought up in a pretty religious household. Uh, and then, you know, as I think everybody does, whether they remain religious into a adulthood or not, uh, I began to question it, you know, and you start having questions that can't be answered by, by texts or by people of authority. And, uh, and so I actually sort of became an agnostic at that point. And that's sort of what the song is about, just sort of that when you're taking that first step towards thinking about things and questioning long-standing beliefs that you might have. I like to think I like to be a traveler One mile is too many miles to go after all it seems to be well after all at least to me and it's scared of this movement the world makes it's not me that makes it turn he's got too much control of the spirit of the globe Oh, oh, how I'm 
So I packed up all my bags in the highway With all the traffic missing, I'll be fine After all, they say to me He's the only thing that's keeping Everyone tied down and safe here on the ground You know they're all afraid to show what just one manifestation of traditional dress for women in the Islamic world. It represents an iteration of dress based on the fundamental principle of modesty required by the Quran. This is one of the definitive passages from the Quran on the concept of modesty. I'll just read it quickly for you. You can read it too. And tell the believing men to lower their gaze and be modest. That is purer for them. Lo, Allah is aware of what they do. And tell the believing women to lower their gaze and be modest, and to display of their adornment only that which is apparent, and to draw their veils over their bosoms, and not to reveal their adornment, save to, and there's a whole list of appropriate people and appropriate relationships that a woman can reveal her adornment to. It's a very lengthy list, I won't go into it. Now, you can see from this that there's a very definite instruction for both men and women to be modest, giving particular attention to covering the intimate parts of the body when in public. When I read this passage, it seemed like such an innocent beginning to such an intense story. And you can see why I felt a little like Alice. For women in the Islamic world, the modesty principle described in the Quran gives rise to a really wide spectrum that runs from high fashion designer headscarves framing a professional makeup job to full on head to hand to toe complete body covering with only a tiny mesh panel through which to see the world. It's important to know that none of these variations of Muslim female attire are specifically called for in the Quran. The wide spectrum of female dress in the Muslim world is completely a product of the cultural, social, and sectarian definition of what is meant by modesty and intimate parts. In this way, the most extreme dress requirements of, for Muslim females are definitely a cultural requirement, but are arguably a religious requirement. The actual religious foundation of the niqab is an argument best left to Islamic scholars but it's the cultural foundation of the niqab that, for me, challenged the meaning of tolerance and freedom. In fact, one of the very first niqab questions that came to me was, why are the facial features of a Muslim woman any more immodest than that of a Muslim man? Mm -hmm. 
First, it's, it's kind of important to know that the niqab and the burqa, the two most extreme forms of Muslim female attire, are widely worn in countries with the most conservative Islamic practices, both in culture and in law. These countries include Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia, as well as a number of other Muslim countries to similar or varying degrees. Zunera Ishaq emigrated from Pakistan, where domestic surveys indicate that the niqab is considered the most appropriate female attire by one-third of the population. This helps explain why she would choose to exercise her right to choose the niqab in her new life as a Canadian citizen. Zunera's resume indicated that she was a university-educated teacher and mother who had been challenging the government NECAD ban for over one year. Her resume reinforced the notion that she was a modern, sophisticated, and well-informed advocate for immigrant rights and positive multiculturalism. So, like I said earlier, for a sophisticated Canadian voter, both the issue and the outcome seemed like pretty much a slam dunk. Our government's cheap attempt at divisive identity politics backfired disastrously as Zunera's kneecap was actually elevated to become a powerful symbol for religious tolerance and freedom of choice in our country. But it was at that moment uh, when we progressive, sophisticated Canadian voters began piling on top of the redneck Islamophobic haters on the other side that my own inner antenna began to extend up and over the indignation. I began to question if, in my desire to be reasonable and Canadian, had I too easily accepted the obvious feel-good symbolism of what was now our kneecap story? I also realized that if the kneecap was now a symbol for our values of tolerance and freedom, that I needed to search for context that would hopefully clarify the connection between the symbol and the values. Now, I need to say again that I'm not trying to make any kind of case here other than to share my own struggle with the meaning of words and the search for context. True to our community vision, I'm sharing some of that context with you, but in no way want to claim that it's definitive of anything other than a possible reason to further explore the context for yourself. As I mentioned earlier, Zunera's compelling stand for her right to choose the niqab was really validated by her background as a 29-year-old, university-educated teacher and mother who immigrated to Canada to seek a new life. But it surprised me to learn that Zunera's now former country, Pakistan, and in that country, she was not by any means an accurate representative of the vast majority of Pakistani women who likely will never get a chance at a new life anywhere. A recent UNICEF, UNICEF study of global literacy reported that of 24 nations with less than 60% female educational enrollment, 17 of those nations are Islamic countries. Now, drilling down a little further, in Pakistan, female educational enrollment is only about 53%. The female literacy rate is stuck around 45% compared to the male literacy rate of 70%. In the area of employment, 
Pakistani females make up only about 25% of the labor force. And this, this was a shock to my system. Over 70% of this small female labor force is dedicated to agriculture. This is another way of saying that most Pakistani females who are not full-time family caregivers or university-educated teachers, like Zunera, are basically farm workers. Now, it's pretty difficult to avoid the serious context of gender inequality that is symbolized by a Pakistani female population that's only 45% literate, which is probably a key reason, actually, why Pakistani female workers are predominantly farm workers. This unfortunate employment situation underscores a larger context that many Pakistani females are aggressively discouraged or even violently prevented from seeking both higher education and better employment due to deeply embedded religious and cultural repression. I think that we can all agree that the rule of law protects our Canadian democracy and that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is its foundation. With our constitution and our laws as a backdrop, the positive symbolism of the kneecap seemed like such a clear glass of water here in our world. But as a result of my continued tumble down the rabbit hole of context, I realized that the guiding principles and legal backdrop of the Islamic world could be, perhaps should be, an alternate lens through which to view the symbolism of the kneecap. So through the looking glass of the law, I went. Of the 50 or so Muslim-majority countries in the world, 12 of those countries have either partially or fully adopted Sharia, the legal system of the Quran, into the foundation and practice of their civil and criminal justice systems. Three of these countries are Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia, where, not coincidentally, the niqab and the burqa are widely worn. The Sharia legal system has some interesting core principles regarding the status of women in their societies. For example, in the area of witness testimony for any civil or criminal case, did you know that two women must testify to equal the testimony of one man? Another interesting number-based Sharia law principle is in the critical area of sexual crimes. For example, in cases of alleged rape, the female victim is allowed to bring charges to bear against a suspected male attacker, but there must be at least four witnesses to support the female's allegations. These four witnesses have to be men. As you can imagine, it's not uncommon to encounter some difficulty in gathering four male witnesses to speak on behalf of a female rape victim. It's also not uncommon for four male witnesses to actually flip the rape allegation to a charge of adultery or unmarried sex against the female victim. Oh yes, it's a small detail. Under Sharia law, both adultery and unmarried sex are considered sexual crimes equivalent to rape. Another important context is in the area of domestic violence. The Quran strongly implies a man's right to discipline or chastise his family. Now, because of this strong Sharia bias, 
in many conservative Muslim countries, the available legal options for victims of domestic violence, again, overwhelmingly female, are often very limited or even non-existent in law. In Pakistan, there are an estimated 5,000 women killed by domestic violence every year, which is a rate six and a half times greater than the violent US and 12 times greater than Canada. Not included in Pakistan's domestic violence deaths are female deaths from the largely unregulated practice known as honor killing. Honor killings are committed by family members on mostly female victims, wives, daughters, and sisters who are judged to have brought dishonor to the family. Examples of honor crimes punishable by death are things like refusing to submit to an arranged marriage, demanding a divorce, alleged flirtatious behavior, and this one surprised me, even being a rape victim. In Pakistan alone, there are an estimated 1,000 to 2,000 female honor killing victims every year. And only 5% of these killings are ever prosecuted as murders. So my tumble down the rabbit hole of context ended up creating way more questions than certainty. The negative experience of so many female Muslims in their native countries in the areas of education, employment, law, and violence provided me with a really different and controversial context for the words tolerance and freedom. It was certainly a new backdrop to my Canadian consideration of the niqab as a valid symbol of tolerance and freedom. This new backdrop had me questioning how many women in the wider Islamic world could honestly support Zunera's claim, these are her own words, that the niqab is a symbol of empowerment. Real contronyms are embedded with their opposite meaning until the proper context is revealed. For that reason, we are compelled to wait for or search for that proper context to know what the contronyms really mean. Now, I'm not really suggesting that tolerance and freedom are officially contronyms, but what I am suggesting is that our most important words have the potential to be distorted and even wrongly applied if we are too simplistic about our symbols or careless about the context. I'll close by offering these questions to you. In the case of important Canadian words like tolerance and freedom, should we also search for important context before we adopt any symbols that will represent the meaning of those words? Even as we freely welcome new citizens into the Canadian family, does that mean that we are also obligated to welcome all the symbols that accompany them, even if they reflect a context that we would oppose? If we agree that our charter rightfully protects Zunera's freedom to choose whether or not to wear the kneecap, does that also mean that we should not or cannot question the choice itself? And lastly, how can we practice tolerance and freedom here 
without glorifying the opposite elsewhere. Just one last thing. If you should choose to tumble down a rabbit hole of your own, I just want to encourage you to discard the magnifying glass and choose the microscope, and to trade your binoculars for a telescope, like Galileo did. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the Question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary starting at 7. You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCom. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions.